This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Once again, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rasho Christi. This is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians, the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic, we'll be talking about a new book called 10 Answers for Skeptics. We have the author with us who we'll be introducing in just a moment. Check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. Our website, it's evidence4faith.com. And look at our archived shows, or you can listen to our podcasts of previous shows on iTunes. You can listen to us through the TuneIn radio app, if you like. And if you want to email us, email us at email at evidence for faith. Also, be sure and check out the Rasho Christie website at rashochristie.org. We have not announced that you could check us out on Facebook for quite some time because the Facebook site kind of died off for a little bit. But good news, Kirk, tell us about the Facebook page. Yes, I uh, went into our Facebook page this past week and I brought it back to life. <laughs> I'm starting to uh, post things on there. I've posted some articles, some interesting articles. I've, uh, I'm going to try to post something on there every week about uh, what our, our past week's uh, radio show was about and what our coming week, week's show is, uh, and any news we come up with, and any interesting cartoons or pictures. I'm trying to make it as interesting as possible. And of course, uh, if our listeners have any questions for us, feel free to write into our Facebook page and we'll do our best to try to answer them. Yeah, it's going to be great. It looks really nice. You're doing a great job with that, Kurt. Thanks. Well, you don't have to look into apologetics very far, either looking, at, looking for books or looking for radio shows or TV shows or getting education without coming across the name Alex McFarland. And it's our pleasure at Evidence to F- for Faith to introduce you to Alex McFarland. Alex, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Well, thank you, Keith and uh, Kirk. I'm very honored to be on, so thanks for making time for me. And I was talking to Alex prior to the show, and he was asking, do I know you from somewhere? And I was trying to think where it was, and Alex, I know where we know each other from. Okay. We've been Facebook friends for about a year now. Wow, okay. Well, you know, I have to confess, um, I'm not a great Facebook friend because I have uh, 1,600 or 1,700 people on there that I barely know, and yet we're we're friends. There you um, go. Isn't that great? So I'm proud um, to call myself a friend of Alex McFarlane. Alex has such a great resume. He has done everything there is to do with apologetics. It's incredible, including previous president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Alex, you do a blog, you do, you've done radio, you do TV. Tell us as much as, as you can about what you're doing, what you've been doing. Well, you know, 
I'm just a guy that wants the whole world to know about Jesus Christ, Amen. and that the Christian worldview is shown to be true, and by true I mean correspondent with reality, in other words, the way things really are. I believe compelling lines of evidence point to the reality that God exists, that God has revealed himself to his creation um, through creation, conscience, scripture, Savior. In other words, God can be known, and we can, we can really evaluate faith claims, so we can see which faith claims are true. We, we can, I believe, expose which faith claims are false. And I guess, you know, for the last 25 years since I became a Christian, I was in college when I became a Christian, you know, I've just been passionate that the whole world hear the gospel in a way that they can understand and have their questions responded to if there are questions or objections. I want the whole world to hear the gospel and have a chance to respond to Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I've been a busy guy, but it's just out of a passion that the whole world know about Christ. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, how many of these things are still active? Do you still have a TV show? I do, I do. Right now, um, it's on um, kind of hiatus for, for two months during the summertime. They're running some reruns on NRB, but we've done about 40, 30-minute shows of the Sound Reason television show. And I'll tell you, Sound Reason started back in 99. The American Family Radio Network asked me to do a show, a radio show, actually, and so for two and a half years, we did this radio show that included my own teaching and commentary. We would interview guests like, you know, everybody from, say, you know, Robbie Zacharias, Josh McDowell, um, even people like Mike Huckabee and Michelle Bachman, you know, opinion makers. Uh, we had Christopher Hitchens on. We had, you know, atheists, Christians, a number of people um, and the, the radio show Sound Reason resulted in an invitation from the NRB Television Network to do a television show. And so my speaking schedule in the summertime is really, really heavy. I'm doing a lot of camps and conferences and things like that. And so um, a week ago, we agreed to kind of put the show on hiatus, and we're not going to resume filming new episodes till about, you know, late July. But, um, you know, apologetics is hot. I mean, the, the radio show, the television show, the books. Um, I got to tell you, 25 years ago, when I first really started getting into apologetics, it was such a new thing that a lot of people, even like Christian leaders, didn't really understand what it was or why it was necessary. And, you know, I remember 20-some um, years ago, I was talking to a major leader of a denomination, and if, if I told which denomination this was, everybody would recognize it. And, um, you know, I was trying to get this guy to support one of our conferences we were putting on, and we started doing, you know, national apologetics conferences back in the early 90s. And um, anyway, this, this denominational leader said to me, he said, well, Alex, I hear you, you know, you're getting Josh McDowell and, you know, these apologists. But he said, look, you're, you're never going to need this C.S. Lewis stuff unless you're on the campus of Yale University. That's what he said. <laughs> And he's, I said, look, you know, we're going to do a session on how to defend the Bible and how do we know that God exists and how to respond to Islam and how to respond to atheism. And uh, he said, and this is a quote, you know, he said, you'll never need that C.S. Lewis stuff unless you're at Yale. Well, you know, we did do an event at Yale. Um, about 10 years ago, we did an event at Yale and saw over 2,200 people come out to listen to the evidence for Christianity. But here we are in 2012, and... Um, I get asked to speak on Islam, you know, at least two or three times a month, uh, atheism, radical secularism, so many things going on. 
And, um, you know, now I would say churches everywhere, at least churches that are serious about reaching people, serious about discipleship, and serious about being culturally relevant, churches everywhere are scrambling to um, acclimate themselves to apologetics. That's why I want to I say to both of you guys that I'm so thrilled for Rasha Christie. And uh, for those who maybe are not familiar with Rasha Christie, I would say that you guys are on the cutting edge of the cutting edge. You are at the absolute vanguard of being innovative and re- relevant as far as reaching the university campus and the classroom and y- young minds. So, you know, to... Uh, to collaborate on the radio today is really an honor because I I want to affirm and applaud what you all are doing with the, um, the Evidence for Faith radio show and with Rasho Christie. It's it's exciting stuff, isn't it? Well, it is, and we're so excited to hear that you're finding that many churches are beginning to see the importance of apologetics. I know I have to confess at my own church I still run into people that. If they hear I'm going to be speaking on something, they'll say, oh, is that going to be apologetics again? And then if it is, they're not interested. So there's still a lot of transition that needs to to take place. But one place that people can do that is not only here at Evidence for Faith, but also the Sound Reason. There's a podcast, and I've listened to that many episodes of your podcast, and it was ranked one of the top 16 podcasts according to Apologetics 315, which is another great source for apologetics information. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I, I've just got to say that um, we right now we are enjoying kind of the, um, the coalescence of, of five decades of apologetics that have been really building. And, and mm-hmm. I really think that, that apologetics and worldview ministry in Western culture has only just begun. But just a little history, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, you had a few people on the horizon, probably the most famous name would have been C.S. Lewis, you know, former atheist who became a Christian, and um, his books have never been out of print. Um, Even at his lowest ebb, probably in the early 70s, C.S. Lewis was selling 100,000 books a year, and now he's selling a million books a year and has been for two decades. But there were some other names 50 years ago, like E.J. Cornell, and uh, by the 60s, you know, begin, some names begin to emerge, like Norm Geisler and Francis Schaeffer, that while they're, um, you know, maybe they're not familiar to everybody, but let me, let me give the topics that begin to emerge. People begin to, the, the thinkers God was raising up would, you know, discuss issues like truth. Does truth exist? Is there anything true? You know, is everything subjective, mere opinion, or is there absolute truth? And then for, you know, I'm going to say 300 years, there's really been a battle going on for the authenticity of the Bible. You know, is the Bible uh, divine written revelation, or is it simply, you know, human speculation? And then what about Jesus? Did Jesus even exist? Can we know what Jesus taught? Was he crucified? Did he rise from the grave? You know, was the Christian gospel uh, a unique message of salvation, or was it simply repackaged ancient paganism? And you know, on and on we could go, the problem of evil, uh, if God is real, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And so for five decades now, some of the best and brightest thinkers that you can name have been very effectively, very substantively, you know, responding to the, the objections and the questions. Well, in the 1970s, uh, an absolute force of nature was unleashed hmm. named Josh McDowell. That's right. Uh, doc- yeah, Dr. Norm Geisler, I interviewed him for a book, one of the books I was writing, this has been about five years ago, 
And Norm said to me, Norm Geisler said, you know, one of the big game changers was Josh McDowell because from 1970 to 1980, in a 10-year period, Josh McDowell, and several have told me this, and Josh himself has told me about this, but um, Josh spoke on about 1,000 university campuses across America in a 10-year period. And that totally raised the bar for awareness of apologetics. And, of course, Josh wrote a couple of books that were classics, uh, More Than a Carpenter, and I've met literally thousands of people around the nation that came to faith through More Than a Carpenter, then, then the other um, evidence that demands a verdict. And mm. so Josh, I would say, um, even if Josh McDowell had retired in 1980, which, thank the Lord, he didn't, I mean, his place in American church history and certainly apologetics history would have been assured anyway. But by the 1980s, along come some other names like William Lane Craig, uh, Gary Habermas, an expert on the resurrection. Ravi Zacharias begins to emerge. There's a guy named John Ankerberg who's had a television show and um, for a lot of years. And, uh, you know, I would say maybe not as famous as Josh or Ravi, but uh, Greg Kokel and um, Stand to Reason. And a lot of, lot of uh, names begin to emerge. And so not only have there been great leaders God has raised up, but then there have been cultural events. In the 80s was the New Age movement and this rise of Eastern spirituality in, in American life, um, uh, an increase in relativism, and, and, you know, a decrease in traditional morality, and uh, an increase in both evangelical churches that were true to the Bible, and an increase in churches that were more liberal and more politically correct, and, and uh, a loss of biblical literacy. Um, by the 90s, you've got um, the, the spread of Islam in American life, and you've got the rise of the gay, uh, the gay rights movement, and then you begin to see, you know, openly homosexual characters on television and the mainstreaming of homosexuality. But let me say this, one of the big things, as far as my own, the media interviews that I've been asked to do, uh, 9-11 was a, was a huge thing, because yes. suddenly Islam, and I remember I was teaching on Islam in the early 90s, and, you know, I even had a journalist one time ask me, they said, you know, why, would, why do Americans need to know about, you know, a... Uh, you know, a religion from the Middle East that didn't even exist prior to the 7th century. And I said, well, you know, Islam is really growing in the West. 9-11 suddenly brought Islam, and to, to an equal degree, world religions to the front page. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, the Church is, is having to explain um, how does Christianity stack up with Islam. And so... On and on I could go, thus the need for Christians to be able to articulate what we believe, why we believe it, and how do we compare and contrast Christianity with all these other faiths competing for the hearts and minds of people. Right. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Alex McFarland, former president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary, an apologist, speaker, and author, and he's been recounting for us some of the history of apologetics, and I agree with you, Alex, that I think 9-11 was really a sea change. It was a watershed moment, and I think that really is woke up, woke up some of the latent atheism and skepticism that was out there, and we do want to talk about your book, 10 Answers for Skeptics, but before we do that, 
you had mentioned in the history of apologetics Josh McDowell, and you have Josh McDowell coming to speak for you at a conference that you're organizing in Spartanburg. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Truth for a New Generation. Uh, it's a conference that, that I've been putting on for 18 years now, and it's really grown and grown and grown. This year, 2012, is going to be the biggest ever. Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, we're going to be at this wonderful venue, a state-of-the-art venue. We can accommodate up to 4,000 people. And we let me say this, listeners, we routinely have attendees from like 35 to 40 U.S. states. So plan now to come to Truth for a New Generation. But um, Josh McDowell, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, Hank Hanegraaff, who is Radio's Bible Answer Man, J.P. Moreland from Biola University, Gary Habermas, the world expert on the resurrection. Uh, we've got Eric Metaxas, who has written a best-selling book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And guys, i got to tell you, uh, anytime Eric Metaxas is on the bill, he just recently spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast yeah. and uh, was very, very out front talking directly to our president, uh, speaking truth to power, as they say. But Eric yeah. Metaxas, people routinely say he is the greatest speaker they've ever heard. Um, Michael Tona, who has debated many atheists and is an expert on the history of, of the New Testament, and uh, many other great speakers I could talk about. Fourteen keynote speakers, all world-class, more than two dozen workshops for all ages. And moms and dads, let me say this. If you don't want four years of college to dismantle what you've worked 18 years to instill, bring your young people to Truth for a New Generation. We've got uh, sessions for pastors, sessions for uh, parents, sessions for young people. Of course, Josh McDowell and so many others, but it is, uh, you know, we believe probably the premier apologetics happening in America this year and um, you know, online registration is already up. We've got a, a, a very deep discount that goes on until the middle of June. Early bird registration, we, we always sell out. So truthforanewgeneration.com is the website, truthforanewgeneration.com. Because uh, my, my passion, guys, is that we see a spiritual awakening in America and a recovery of truth, and therefore apologetic is a big part of that. So uh, please... Pray, promote, plan to attend. I can relate to a lot of this that you're saying, Alex. I became a Christian in 1976 when I was 24. Okay. The first three books that I read after I became a Christian was first, of course, the, the New Testament. The second book was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And the third book was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and those three books did it for me. Well, you, you know... Um, my my friend, Chuck Colson, and, and Chuck Colson just went to be with the Lord. He came to the Lord through reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And, you know, Colson has been at a number of our events. He was going to be there um, at Truth for a New Generation this fall, and then his, his health declined, and he said, well, I'll um, do a video message. And then, of course, you know, we, we, I was actually at a luncheon with him on March 30th, and then that evening he had a, 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 a seizure and um, went in for surgery and passed away. So we're going to do something to honor Chuck Colson. Your, your mentioning of mere Christianity just reminded me of that. I'll tell you, I've got a, a book on atheism coming out in the fall, and Dr. Colson had agreed to write the foreword, and uh, there's already an ad that's been in a trade magazine that says forward by Chuck Colson, but sadly that's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, he's another vacancy on the horizon. Let, let me say this. The reason I'm bringing this up is because um, 
we need to challenge some, some people to take up the apologetics banner. And we need to pray that God would raise up some leaders. Um, you know, on the horizon, James Kennedy, who was a great uh, example of a worldviewish pastor, James mm-hmm. Kennedy is gone. And, uh, you know, Bill Bright, who launched Josh McDowell, Bill Bright is gone. Josh himself is in his 70s. His birthday is in August, and I think Josh will be something like 71 or 72 this August. So, listeners, if you're, if you're not a Christian, take a look at the evidence and, and see that it's really real. If you are a Christian, either groom yourself to be a, a force for the gospel, or mentor, or encourage, or support evidence for Faith Radio, or Rasha Christie, so that they can continue to groom leaders, because guys, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I don't want to say concerns me, but one of the things uh, for which I'm praying is that God would raise up a generation of leaders, of, of young men and young women, that would know truth, that would have a mind for truth, a heart for Christ, and a life devoted to reaching people, because, um, you know, you mentioned these names, and, you know, Josh won't be around forever. Ravi is in his 60s, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi won't be around forever. So I think we've always got to be replicating ourselves, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Alex, while we're on the topic of this general need for apologetics, uh, one of the questions I'm, that really has me concerned, and I know a, a lot of people, is these studies that show that Christian kids are leaving the faith. Do you have any insights on that? I know, you know we're, we're hearing that it's 60 to 80 percent. There's lots of disagreement as to why kids are leaving the faith. So, do you have any sense for what is the church doing wrong that our kids would be leaving the faith? Well, um, you're, you're right. I mean, this, the attrition rate, the evangelical attrition rate, is an important thing that we need to recognize and be mindful of. Uh, let me say this. Uh, April 16, 2012, Time Magazine had, had a cover story entitled Rethinking Heaven. And this cover story was about, you know, the afterlife, and um, studies show that everybody thinks about death, what happens after you die. But the thing is that has made this um, milieu, this era in which we live, kind of unique, is that there's just this pervasive assumption that we all make up our own truth. It's, It's kind of the default position of most people, and certainly of young people, that, you know, there's no real ultimate objective truth. You know, whatever you believe is fine, just be sincere about it. And um, in, in the Time magazine from just, you know, three weeks ago, it was, it was just basically talking about how, um, you know, everybody kind of cobbles together their own idea of what truth is. Now, mm-hmm. kids raised in church are not immune to the cultural mindset of sub- subjectivism or relativism. And, you know, study after study, the, the Colson Center, the Barna Research Group, David Kinnaman, um, focused on the family, where I worked full-time for three years, and many others, uh, you know, the uh, Lifeway Research with uh, Tom Rayner and different ones, talk about intellectual skepticism sort of rides on, on three things. Number one is just we, we live in a culture of subjectivism, and so we've got to, you know, make sure that we compensate for that. The other thing, though, is biblical illiteracy. And you ask the question, you know, what is the Church doing wrong? And, you know, I don't want to bash the Church, because, you know, um, I said this by the grace of God, I mean, I've been in, in, I don't know, almost 1,400 churches now to speak, and, you know, churches, they work hard, they've got a great work ethic, but so I don't want to say it's what the Church is doing wrong, but I want to say it it is what the Church is maybe leaving out. And, uh, you know, let's 
not even touch on biblical worldview just yet. Let's just talk about the Bible. I'm in youth groups, I'm in churches, like, every weekend to speak for, for two decades. You know, I've been in churches 45, 48 weekends a year for two decades, and I'm just not hearing the Bible taught. Now, I'm hearing a lot of praise courses, and I'm seeing a lot of skits, and, and, you know, youth ministry in America, and, and hey, I love the church, and, and I, I still have a big dose of youth pastor in me. I was a full-time youth pastor seven years, but it's like pizza, paintball, Pepsi. Rock 'em, roll 'em. Let's make sure nobody's bored. High energy, go go go, fun, fun, fun. And yet, our kids are biblically illiterate. And and I got to tell you, I want to challenge the you know parents, youth pastors, church workers here. I would rather have a dozen kids that were true disciples than a hundred that were simply spectators. And so. Number one, the attrition rate is because we live in a culture of relativism. Number two, we live in an era of church uh, light, L-I-T-E, biblical illiteracy. Um, and kids, you know, just don't know their Bible, and the Bible is so important. Um, you know, Psalm 119, verse 93, I will never forget thy words, for through them I found life. Um, so we've got to get more Bible into um, the church. The other thing is this critical thinking skills. Mm. I'm, and and listen, I love the Church, but think about this, guys, now just brace yourself. A, a USA Today study in 05 documented that there are, are 82% of Americans that identify themselves as Christians. A 2008 survey, the American Religious Identification Survey, um, which is highly respected, documented that 173 million Americans identify themselves as Christians. Now, now think about this. We've got 82% of the American population that self-identify as Christian, and yet less than one-third are even registered to vote or do vote. And if you ask the questions, and, and many surveys have been done by many agencies and entities, um, is the Bible the, the Word of God? 50% say yes, 50% say no. Could Jesus have sinned while he was here on Earth? 60% plus or minus say yes, Jesus might have sinned. Um, Heaven wow. is a place where everyone goes as long as they're sincere about their beliefs. Almost eight out of ten professed Christians will say yes. So, and on and on we could go. But the point is this: that um, we've got a lack of biblical foundation, and then we've got a lack of critical thinking skills. Um, you know, and so when kids get to college, and in my book Stand Strong in College, one of my books I wrote, I interviewed three hundred college freshmen. And I identify the four areas in which college can challenge the faith of a young person. Part of the reason that most Christian kids, somewhere between 7 to 8 out of 10, jettison their faith after high school. Now, I want to say more about that in a moment, but hang with me here. Part of the reason that from 18 to 24 in this window, um, 70% plus of evangelical kids will walk away from Christianity um, is because they live in a culture of relativism. They don't know the word, therefore they can't really adequately, you know, send off the objections against the faith. They don't have critical thinking skills, and they're easily, easily uh, led astray by vacuous arguments of unbelievers. Uh, now they get to college, and they, they, you know, emotionally, socially, spiritually, academically, they simply are ill-equipped to face the attacks on Christianity that. Um, represent most university environments today. Now, of those that fall away from the faith, a few will, as I say, limp 
back to Christianity in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, young people um, begin to get married. They begin to have kids. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I want my kids to have some values. Uh, let's get back in church. Well, of the 80% that fall away, 75-80%, one-third of those will limp back to Christianity by uh, age 30. But they come back with baggage, uh, not only spiritual and, and mental baggage, but they come back with sometimes physical baggage, like STDs and the wounds of a decade of life without Jesus. And they're, they're just not really well-equipped to become champions for Christ. Now, we thank God for anybody who comes back to the faith, and, you know, we want to um, minister to anybody, you know, where they are, as they are. However, I think apologetics—in fact, I know this to be true—apologetics is the discipline for our times to help the Church effectively reach the lost, to equip disciples to not fall prey to the false teachings of our time. And, and let me say this, moms and dads, listen, <laughs> rather than uh, fix broken adults, how about we preemptively equip young people to thrive for Jesus in an increasingly dark culture? I mean, not only uh, should we do it, we have to do it, and the Bible tells us to do it. That's the need for apologetics, and that's the need that everybody listening come to Truth for a New Generation, September 28, 29. There you go. There you go. And I think apologetics also helps with that issue of that the kids don't know their Bible or they don't know Christian doctrine. It may be that they they do know the Christian doctrine. They just simply have not personally chosen that for their morally relative viewpoint. Could be. So without you know, without without you can teach the doctrine. But if you don't teach how you can know that doctrine is true, the apologetics that goes along with it, then there's no reason for those students in your Sunday school class or your youth group to choose to believe that doctrine when they have so many other choices that actually help them to get along with their friends in school. That's true. And, you know, we, we've become such a pragmatic society. Um, one of the tests for truth is, you know, does it work? And right. so a lot of people kind of in their mind, they, they reason this way. They're like, well, my um, professor who has a Ph.D. is not a Christian, and he seems to be doing okay. Or my, you know, my colleague at school is a, a homosexual, you know, Wiccan, and they seem to be happy and well-adjusted, and therefore their worldview must be equally valid to Christianity. And, you know, G.K. Chesterton said a uh, man's most pragmatic need is to be something more than a pragmatist. And, and for many, the test for truth has become pragmatism. And, you know, we've got to, you know, I'll, I'll say this, you know, a, a true worldview has got to measure up to four C's, uh, comprehensive, cohesive, corroborated, and completing. In other words, does your worldview answer the big questions? Is it comprehensive? Is it cohesive? Does it make sense and hang together? And is it livable? And is it corroborated by evidence? philosophical, historical, scientific, experiential, and is it completing? In other words, does it fulfill your life, and is it actually um, something that you would, would die for? And, and I would submit, and I know we could go hours and hours, prag, uh, apparent pragmatism notwithstanding, apparent pragmatism, only biblical Christianity, God, Jesus, Bible, um, is comprehensive, cohesive, corroborated, and really completes your life. And so we've got to be able to look past the, the supposed alleged pragmatism of competing worldviews and look at, you know, Christianity. Now, I realize we're not just uh, cognitive creatures, we're emotional creatures. Um, 
you know, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas lived 1225 to 1274. Thomas Aquinas said every possible argument against Christianity has a rational mistake in it somewhere, and therefore there exists the possibility that it be answered. That's a big, fat, uh, grandiose way of saying that Christianity can be defended. Aquinas, this is a great quote, I'll give it again. He said, every possible argument against the doctrines of the Christian faith have a rational mistake in them somewhere, and therefore there exists the possibility that they be answered. If we were mere cognitive creatures, um, you know, it would be one thing, but we're emotional creatures. And so we've got to understand that um, part of defending the faith is not only giving good content, but building relationships and showing love. Um, right. I, I tell people this, I mean, we can do apologetics, but we ourselves can be an apologetic. And, and I think part of our um, walk and our witness today has got to be not only the data and the content, but also, you know, building relationships with non-believers. Trust, honesty, respect, and listening to their, um, you know, counter-opinion. And then, you know, when they see that we truly care about them. For instance, I'll, I'll give you a for instance. I've got uh, an atheist friend in California, and he is not within a hundred miles of the faith, as far as I can tell. But, um, you know, we're friends, and when I'm in uh, L.A., we, we go to lunch, and we talk. And, um, you know, he, he it said to me that, um, you know, when I first met you several years ago, I didn't want to like you. Uh, you're a Christian. You're an apologist. I had purpose in my mind. I was not going to like you. He said, but I, I have to admit, you're not bad. And, <laughs> now he's not a Christian yet. Right, but we, we definitely have a friendship, and it's a a reciprocal give and take relationship. And I'm sowing seeds of truth, and um, what he does with those seeds of truth is between he and God. But um, you know, we've got to remember that people are cognitive and emotional. And uh, on the cognitive side, we give truth. On the personal, emotional, relational side, we show that we care. And and I've seen it a hundred times. I mean, I've seen atheists come to faith. I've seen. Um, you know, backslidden people come back to the faith. I've seen Muslims. I've baptized two Muslims that came to faith, but took a long, lot of relationship building along the way. But apologetics is, friends, the most riveting, thrilling, fulfilling, and I would say effective um, Christian discipline uh, to immerse oneself in. And uh, I'm just thrilled to see that God is growing it here in this uh, culture. Yes, wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Alex McFarland, former president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary, an apologist and author who has recently written a book, Ten Answers for Skeptics. And Alex, we do have a lot of skeptics that listen to our podcasts and to the radio show because of some debates that we've done on air with some atheists. Yeah. So let's jump into your book and tell us about 10 Answers for Skeptics. What is that book about? Well, um, 10 Answers for Skeptics is my most recent book. And, you know, over the years in debating and, you know, I think about my own journey. You know, I became a Christian when I was in college. I was 21. And I, I pretty much would have in fact, I did. Before I was a Christian, I called myself a philosophical anarchist. I was in a band. Um, I wrote a song called Legalized Acid. And, I mean, I basically was a uh, no rules, no laws, no boundaries kind of guy. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, my mindset before I became a born-again Christian. 
and you know, I wanted just to. Uh, I believe that there should be no rules. I guess I was somewhere between a a, a, a strict libertarian and uh, really, you know, anarchist. Um, and I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, the reactions of some of the friends I had at college that, you know, some were like, well, Christianity's false. Some people were like, science has disproven the need for God or the reality of God. You know, um, I remember I had one friend who was an anthropology major, and he didn't believe Jesus existed. Uh, then I had one friend uh, years ago who, um, you know, he just flat out told me, he said, look, um, if I became a Christian, I would um, have to stop, you know, sleeping around with uh, different women every weekend, and I don't want to do that. And, you know, if, if God is real and Christianity is true, it's going to affect my sex life. And so uh, God is just not something I want to think about right now. Well, about two years ago, I decided to, um, you know, look over my notes I'd kept of interactions with non-believers, and also I began to interview some atheists and some professed agnostics, some of the Internet infidels that I've dialogued with over the years, um, even some, you know, people, well-known people like Christopher Hitchens, who I had on my radio show twice um, on Sound Reason Radio, and, and different others. And, you know, I just began to notice that there were different types of skeptics. Um, not all skeptics come to the table of unbelief with the same reason. And so in the book, Ten Answers for Atheists, there are really more than 70 answers. You know, mm-hmm. I was I began to talk to skeptics and atheists, and I said, okay, hit me with your best shot. You know, what is your beef with Christianity? And um, in the book, not only do we look at ten different profiles of skeptics, what we call the wounded skeptic, the syncretistic skeptic, the biased, skeptic, the sensual skeptic, the educated skeptic. You know, we've, we've got 10 different profiles. Uh, I also answer more than 70 questions that were posed to me by actual skeptics and actual atheists. So I feel like the book, you know, I interviewed 34 professed skeptics. You know, I feel like the book is not really theoretical. I mean, it's really practical and really actual, you know, give and take with, you know, unbelievers. But to the Christian, I would say that this book will help you you know, if you look at the 10 profiles, 10 different types of skeptics, you, you'll be able to quickly tell where somebody's coming from. You know, like if you're talking to somebody and, and they come out and they say, you know, well, um, you know, I think that um, if there is a heaven, we'll all get in, you know, and uh, heaven and hell are here on earth. The, the best this earth has to offer is heavenly. The worst of this world is hellish. He- heaven and hell are here on earth. And if there is a heaven, we all get in, you know. That's, that's one type of skeptic. And if you look at somebody who says, well, you know, science has disproven God, you know, you can go to the chapter on the, the scientific skeptic. And you won't waste your time, you know, maybe talking past them. The other thing, if you are a skeptic and you read this book, and I've given this book away to a number of atheists and skeptics, I think you'll probably, if you're honest, if you're willing to be honest, and um, not all skeptics are really objective and honest. Many are many are not, but I think you'll see yourself in here. You'll, you'll probably see yourself, and I've got, the book's been out about six months, I've got literally hundreds of emails from people, you know, pro and con, but a lot of skeptics have said, Alex, you know, you're right, I'm not a believer yet, but but if, if I'm honest, you know, you really have kind of, um, you know, peeled back some layers that I was hiding behind. But beyond that, I mean, we've got questions in there, you know, how do you harmonize the resurrection accounts from the four Gospels? Um, you know, what about Jesus and ancient mythology? 
So the book, um, I give God the glory, but the book was nominated for an award. I just found out a week ago, Christian Retailing Magazine nominated the, the book um, for an award, Book of the Year in Evangelism. But um, it's just, you know, my most recent book and my quest to uh, equip the saved and persuade the lost. And, um, you know, again, I want to say that the evidence for Christianity, I believe, is compelling. You know, we believe by faith, trust. But it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap right. in the dark. I mean, it, it really is legitimate. In fact, guys, I would say that a, a, a resolute, dogmatic unbelief in light of the evidence is what's unjustified. But right. That's the irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've got a section in the book on inside the mind of the skeptic. That sounds interesting. What's that section about? Well, you know... Um, that And, you know, Inside the Mind of the Skeptic is really the subtitle of the book, Ten Answers for Skeptics. The publisher, you know, Regal Books, named it Ten Answers for Skeptics because I've got so many books with ten in the title. Although, like I said, we answer, you know, some 70 questions in this book. But Inside the Mind of the Skeptic is, you know, really trying to, you know, find out where people are coming from. And, you know, what I, what I uncovered was that the presenting issue and the actual issue is not always the same thing. Um... I could give you a number of examples, but, you know, in medicine, uh, doctors talk about the presenting problem and the real problem. You know, um, somebody might go to the doctor and say, um, you know, I have headaches every third morning about, you know, sunrise. When I wake up, I've got a, a migraine headache. That might be the presenting problem. The, the real issue might be that they uh, are a closet alcoholic and they're hungover every three days. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I would have people say... Um, I had one skeptic. In fact, he was 15 years old, and he claimed to be an atheist. Um, and he was very adamant God did not exist. He was one of the most articulate teenagers with whom I've ever dialogued. And, um, you know, finally I asked him, I said, um, you know, did you ever believe in God, or have you experienced, you know, a, a real loss? And are you really, could it be that you're angry at God? And this 15-year-old began to explain, he said, well, um, you know, my grandfather who helped raise me was actually a pastor. And, um, I said, okay, tell me about him. And he said, well, he committed suicide. I said, oh, okay. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, dominant male role model in the life of this young person, he committed suicide. And I said, okay, um, tell me what, what, what that was like. And he said, well, um, the pastor of another local church came over, and he said, you know, my grandfather had committed suicide. We had just learned of this, you know, an hour prior and this pastor began to say, um, I want to tell you all about Christ. Your grandfather is in hell right now, but I don't want you all to go to hell. And I looked yeah. at him, and um, the, the, the kid explained to me that his grandfather, you know, his spouse had died um, 50 years. The, the grandmother had died. At 50 years of marriage is gone. The grandfather was on antidepressant, and life became intolerable, and so the grandfather committed suicide. I looked at the teenager, and I said, now, wait a minute, your grandfather who helped raise you, that you loved, and he was a role model in your life, he committed suicide, and the local pastor informs you that he's in hell. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, the idea of your grandfather being in hell is intolerable, so you created a world in which he's not in hell, but um, that came at the expense of eliminating God. And he looked at me, and he said, yeah, pretty much. And so, um, by the way, this played out over a two-hour conversation. And I said, well, first of all, let me say this. Um, I'm sorry that pastor said that to you, because um, it's not a proven scriptural fact that, you know, somebody who takes their own life goes to hell. 
I mean, taking your own life is a terrible thing. Anyway, we begin to talk about, you know, what Augustine and some of the great thinkers have, have said on this issue. Mm. Long story short, over a, over a long period of conversations, this young person came back to say um, that, and it was from some good biblical worldview teaching that we, you know, were able to minister to this person. But my point is this, everybody has a reason for walking away from God. Everybody who has walked away from God, there's more to it than meets the eye. Because you see, and I want to say this, atheism is a learned position. Um, the default position of people everywhere is theism. There right. must be a God. I was in Africa. I've spent a total of about two months of my entire life in Africa. Okay, I'm in Africa, and um, we were in Zambia, and I was at this place 100 miles into the bush country, and met a man, uh, and he's pointing to the sky, gesturing, talking, which through an interpreter. I said, what did he say? And my interpreter, he said, um, he says he knows there's a God because all of this had to come from somewhere, but he doesn't know where to take it from there. Now, guys, translate that for me. The, the African man says to me, he knows there's a God, all of this had to come from somewhere, but he don't know where to take it from there. Incredible. That's fabulous. It's, it's well, general uh, it's, revelation. It matches up with something we talked about on the show not long ago, was a study that showed that infants, young children, have an innate belief in God, no matter what culture they're, they're from, even from atheistic cultures. Uh, they instinctively believe in an all-powerful being who is all good. Yeah. So, so that is the default position. So you do have to make yourself into an atheist, and yeah. often the reasons may not be what the atheist tells you up front. So I guess the real message then is we need to not only listen carefully, but we also need to ask the right kinds of questions and probe a little bit. Exactly, exactly. Um, do, you, do you know children? By the way, how are we doing on time? I want to be respectful of time. We've got about four minutes left. Okay. And guys, uh, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, I, I truly appreciate this. But, um, you know, I, at Liberty University, I did my M.A. In, in Christian Thought and Apologetics. Liberty, 20 years ago, was one of the first schools to have an apologetics program. Now there are a number like Biola, North Greenville University, where I am on staff. Uh, the website of North Greenville, by the way, is ngu.edu. But um, I did my... Um, master's degree in apologetics Christian thought, and I minored in developmental psychology. And um, you are quite correct that children are, are kind of hardwired to believe in God. In fact, when they're um, in the stage of what, what they call, you know, concrete thought, and they're developing the capacity for abstract thought, you can ask children. And by the way, I, I've interviewed more than 100 children for my next book for Focus on the Family that's going to be out in January, uh, answering the toughest questions children have about God. Um, children, if you say, um, why is the, the sun in the sky? And um, children will say, God made it. You know, why did God put the sun in the sky? Children will say, to make me happy. And children have, the, the default position of children is that there is a God, and that he's good, and that he does things for me. Now, you know, children, it's just precious how kind of, um, you know, self-centered they can be, but, but um, you know, they'll say, you know, um, you can ask a child, um, why do we why do we eat food? Um, you know, God gave it to us. Why did God give us food? Because I like it. You know, uh, mm. what, children will ask things like this. You know, uh, will there be will will there be a Chuck E. Cheese in heaven? <laughs> you know, and uh, I'll say, what do you think? And they'll say, probably because God knows I like it. 
I'm hoping for a McDonald's. Oh, well, yeah, for real. Or um, an In-N-Out burger. That would be pretty cool. But, um, <laughs> but you know, the, the thing is this, and, and I want to say this, and I, I, I don't mean it cruelly. So I want to, in, in advance, ask forgiveness for anyone who's offended by what I'm about to say. But let me say this. Atheism is a learned pathology. And I, I don't use the word pathology in a pejorative sense, but um, I've interacted with atheists for 20 years, and it, it really affects how they um, interact with other people. Um, the, the vertical definitely informs the horizontal, and man to God definitely influences person to person. And um, there has to be so much cognitive dissonance created to maintain one's atheism that it, it really is not only spiritually but psychologically unhealthy. Because, I mean, you've got to doggedly believe that, um, you know, matter came from nothing, chaos was the mother of order, chance gave rise to intelligence, inanimate matter developed consciousness, individuation and different centers of consciousness developed. Um, you've got to doggedly maintain that there is no objective morality, but yet at the same time uh, defend that it's wrong to steal and murder and lie and rape. And so to maintain one's atheism, you have to, uh, in your mind, um, devote so much bandwidth to allowing these incompatibilities to coexist all at the same time. Yep. And and it's so counterintuitive. And frankly, um, you know, I've, I've had a number of atheists. Bart Ehrman, who is an ex-Christian, Bart Ehrman said to me, and I don't know if he would uh, admit this, but he did. Uh, we were in my office after a debate, and I said, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, you were a Moody grad, you were a, a youth pastor at one time, you were a devout Christian, and now you're an atheist. There's 100,000 errors in the Bible, you say. What are you going to do when you face God? Bart Ehrman said to me, he said, I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I've awakened at 3 in the morning in a cold sweat. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. Wow. Wow. Wonderful. Well, Alex, it has been terrific having you on the show. We're really thrilled to have you as a, a guest uh, on Evidence for Faith. Well, thank you so much. God bless you. My, my own website is alexmcfarland.com. I'm here to serve the body of Christ. Pray for me, please. Call me. Let's talk. And Godspeed to you all and Rasha Christie. Wonderful. Thank you. We've been talking with Alex McFarland, former president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, about his book, Ten Answers for Skeptics. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, and join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,